Good evening. I'm Pamela Pierce, coordinator of Penn Events, and I'm delighted to welcome you to an international evening, readings by authors from different nations. Once again, it's been my great pleasure to work with the Penn Writers in Exile Center uh, in putting together this evening. I hope that uh, you will join us for a reception afterward. I'd like to introduce Karen Kennerly, Executive Director of Penn American Center. Okay. Good evening. I'd like to welcome and introduce to you Manuel Argueta, who is perhaps Central America's preeminent literary figure. In 1977, he was accorded Latin America's most prestigious literary award, the Casa de las Americas Prize. He has authored three volumes of poetry and novels that are considered to be classics, El Valle de las Hamacas, One Day of Life, Cus Catalan, and most recently, a children's book, Magic Doll, Dogs of the Volcanoes. He currently has a work in progress, Night of the Children. He is, in addition to being a distinguished novelist and poet, a fervent social activist. Having, having been violently expelled from El Salvador four times and arrested on numerous occasions for defending various democratic causes. Born in San Miguel, El Salvador, on November 24, 1935, he has lived in exile in Costa Rica since 1973. Manuel Argueta. Para qué putas escribir? ¿Qué gano con decir verdad? Mejor me voy con mi canción a otra parte y nos vemos en la otra muerte, que también es esta vida. This poem is entitled My Country and it is a poem about the experience of exile. My country is a jungle my hours are another jungle, my office, my factory. The men rush down the mountain like a stampede of immense animals. If I say my country is an El Dorado, a river of, of gold nuggets, not forgetting that Cuscatlan, the original name of El Salvador, means land of jewels and abundance, and that all of us are happily singing in the branches of trees, then why the hell do I write? What's to be gained by speaking the truth? It's better I take my song elsewhere and see you later in that other death, also known as the next life. La chinchintora se alimenta de jocotes maduros. I'm sorry. Se alimenta de jocotes tiernos y de mangos maduros. Es una culebra del tamaño de dos metros, tan delgada que se confunde con los bejucos. Con sus grandes hacialazos puede cortar las ramas de los árboles, casi vuela, colérica, mata a golpes a la gente. Cuando ve a los campesinos se pone muy rabiosa. Su solo sonido peculiar es algo así como chinchintur, que hace orinarse del miedo. Por eso le dicen chinchintora o zumbadora. No es venenosa pero al saltar fustiga fuerte con su cuerpo como si fuera un látigo y produce grandes bubas en la piel, se cae la piel. 
la víctima muere poco a poco, con grandes dolores y grandes sufrimientos. Pero algunos valientes campesinos de Cuscatlán, donde bate la mar del sur, les roban la destreza y la fuerza a la culebra, porque descubren su secreto. Se trata de una piedra misteriosa que lleva en sus entrañas y que hace invencible a quien la posee. Es bravo como una chinchintora, se dice de algunas gentes. Hay que comenzar por no temerle y buscarle en su propia guarida, en las cumbres de los cerros y de los volcanes activos. Cuando se oye el zumbido de la chinchintora volando por entre los árboles, los campesinos se acercan con cuidado, la persiguen en silencio apenas poniendo los pies sobre la tierra para no ser descubiertos, pero antes se encomiendan a Dios porque saben que los golpes de la zumbadora son mortales. Como los campesinos de Cuscatlán son más tercos que el agua de los ríos cuando se abre camino entre las montañas, al nomás oírla encienden un tabaco para tomar valor y agilidad y hacerse indetectables en una nube de humo. Se quitan la camisa y con ella envuelven uno de los brazos que lo mueven imitando el movimiento de la zumbadora y bailan frente a ella cantándole Te pongo el pie, culebra, y no me haces nada, culebra. Se tiran al suelo esquivando los golpes, gritando para que el animal se confunda y se agote, sin dejar de fumar el tabaco, los campesinos envueltos en humo. La chinchintora zumba, de ahí proviene su nombre, da saltos en el aire tratando de golpear su mismo eco, que hasta las hojas del bosque tiemblan. Después de muchos saltos sin pegar en el blanco, la chinchintora se desmoraliza y echa la piedra, gimiente, derrotada, porque al echar la piedra se sabe vencida. Los campesinos cantan su canción de triunfo. Te pongo el pie, culebra, y no me haces nada, culebra. Maniatan la piedra en sus pañuelitos coloridos y la llevan siempre muy cerca del corazón para que no les ocurran desgracias, para hacerse invisibles e invencibles. Son los campesinos del volcán Guazapa, del volcán Chinchontepec, del volcán Chaparrastique, de todos los volcanes activos donde viven las chinchintoras zumbadoras. The name Cuscatlán has come up in both of these first two poems, and I just want to quickly say that it's the original name of El Salvador, the Nahuatl name. The Chinchintora, which this poem is about, is a snake, those of you who understood the Spanish know, and it is a real snake, which is given much, much power here. And its existence as a symbol goes way back in, in campesino culture in El Salvador to this moment. It has been updated to apply to the current enemy, the current confrontation, the current things that the campesinos, this poem is really about. Whether it is as magical as this snake, I would never speculate, but it needs to be at least as powerful to serve as comparison, as proper competition for the campesinos this poem is actually about. La Chinchintora. It feeds on tender jocotes and ripe mangoes. It's a snake two meters long, yet so slender it can be mistaken for the stalk of a vine. The powerful blow of its whip-like body can slice the branch off a tree. It almost flies. If angered, it will slash a person to death. When it sees campesinos, it becomes furious. The sound only it can make, something like chinchintur, will make you wet your pants in fear. That's why they call it the chinchintora, or zumbadora, the buzzer. 
It's not poisonous, but can leap up and lash into your body like a horsewhip. First, large pustules will form on your skin. Then the skin begins to fall away. Little by little, the victim dies in great pain and with much suffering. But some brave campesinos of Cuscatlan, where the southern sea beats, have stolen its dexterity and strength. They discovered its secret, the power of a mysterious stone that carries deep within its entrails that makes invincible whoever possesses it. This is why some people use the expression brave as a chinchintura. From the onset, they are without fear. They search for its lair at the tops of hills and active volcanoes. When they hear the buzz of the chinchintura blowing like wind through the trees, the campesinos approach carefully. To avoid discovery, they pursue it in silence, barely touching their feet to the ground. These are courageous men. Beforehand, they, thems they place themselves in God's hands. They know the lash of the zumbadora is always mortal. The moment it falls silent, the campesinos of Cuscatlan, more stubborn than the waters of the rivers that carve their paths between mountains, light up tobacco. The smoke gives them courage and agility and makes them undetectable in its protective cloud. They take off their shirts, and having surrounded it, each moves one of his arms as to mirror the movements of the zumbadora. They dance right in front of it, singing, I step on you, snake, and you won't do a thing to me, snake. They drop to the ground, evading its blows, screaming until the animal is confused and exhausted. Through it all, they are smoking tobacco. They are wrapped in a cloud of smoke. The chinchintora buzzes, enacting the origin of its second name, and leaps in the air, trying to strike its own echo. Even the leaves tremble in the forest. After countless leaps toward nothing, the chinchintora becomes demoralized and expels the stone. It moans, overcome. Having given up the stone, it knows it's been defeated. The campesinos sing their song in triumph. I step on you, snake. You won't do a thing to me, snake. They tie up the stone in their colored handkerchiefs and always carry it close to their breasts. This will prevent misfortune, will make them invisible, invincible. These are the campesinos of the Guasapa volcano, of the Chinchontepec volcano, of the Chaparrastique volcano, of all the active volcanoes where the Chinchinturas, Zumbadoras live. slightly, which is, I'm going to read the English first, which would be easier, I think, and then you'll be able to understand. So, but I won't be, I won't sing the song parts as Manlio does. You won't <laughs> have to do that. This poem is found in a, in a real historical source, where Manlio found it in a historical reference. And we've, Manlio has chosen to read it because of the recent 500th anniversary of, of the, what perhaps is the end of what we might remember as Colombian America. The language is antiquated in both either language, and we have left two, in, in Spanish we have left two amounts of things. 
One is a, an arroba, which is 1.6 bushels, and one is called a fanega, which is 25 pounds. The Chronicler of the Indies, 1548. The village of Zacate Coluca, 30 leagues from San Salvador, was overseen and assessed for its taxes by Juan de Medina, who lived therein. And an order he issued to the natives of said village stated that they would each year cultivate specifically for the aforementioned overlord two fields of corn, one in winter, the other in summer. Depending on the overlord's wishes, and contingent upon the authority he exercised over them was the determination of whether this did or did not fulfill the obligations of the natives. He thus required that they each year harvest six fanegas of beans and eight of cotton. Furthermore, their obligations entailed that every two months they would provide the overlord with the following, 50 blankets and 10 large pieces of white canvas, and each year 15 bushels of chili, 20 arrobas of salted fish, 20 fanegas of salt, 8 arrobas of cleaned wax, 12 jars of honey, 300 Castilian hens, 150 pairs of hemp sandals, 4 sides of jerked beef, 30 jars of vinegar, 30 jars of wine. Furthermore, they will surrender to their lord overseer 4 pounds of fresh fish, 40 eggs, a bushel of fruits in accordance with the harvest, 6 Indians to tend the livestock, and 6 more for general services. Recommended on the part of the overlord is the fulfillment of the following obligations. To feed them, to teach them the doctrines of Christianity and the respect and love of God. All colonial overlords are suffered upon to not offer the Indians anything in excess of these proper enumerations. It would be wrong to accustom them to more. This policy will also apply to the question of pardons, of flexibility in the exactment of tax tributes. No one should be given the impression they will be conceded rights in order that they not accustom themselves to complaint. This all is for the proper governance of these lands, of the Indies, of the sea, and of the world. Cronista de Indias, 1548. Fue encomendado y tasado el pueblo de Zacatecoluca a 30 leguas de San Salvador por Juan de Medina, vecino de ella. Y mandóse a los naturales del dicho pueblo que cada año se le haga al dicho encomendero dos cementeras de maíz, una en invierno y otra en verano. Y si el encomendero quisiera, esto ya no es obligación de los naturales, depende de la autoridad que sobre ellos ejerza, que le siembren cada año seis fanegas de frijoles y ocho de algodón. Además, es obligatorio que cada dos meses le den al encomendero lo siguiente, 50 mantas y 100 toldos blancos grandes. Y cada año... 15 cargas de chile, 30 arrobas de pescado, 20 fanegas de sal, 8 arrobas de cera, limpi, de cera limpia, 12 cántaros de miel, 300 gallinas de castilla, 150 pares de alpargatas, 4 reces en tasajos, 30 cántaros de vinagre, 30 cántaros de vino. Además, cada viernes debe entregar al señor encomendero 4 libras de pescado fresco, 40 huevos, una carga de fruta segunda cosecha, 6 indios para que cuiden el ganado y otros 6 para servicios ordinarios por parte del encomendero es obligación que cumpla las siguientes recomendaciones darles de comer enseñarles la doctrina cristiana y el respeto y el amor a dios serán penados los encomenderos si se exceden ofreciendo a los indios otras cosas de las aquí señaladas para no malacostumbrarlos 
tal como perdonarles sus tributos o tratarles con flexibilidad. No debe darse nunca la impresión que se les concede derecho para no acostumbrarse los arreglamos. Todo ello es para la buena gobernación de estas tierras de las Indias, del mar del mundo. The last two poems we're reading are about the past and what is the present and will hopefully be the future. The first is a nightmare of the war, and the second very brief one, which is the last poem we'll read, is a, a dream of the peace. A horizon of dogs. The helicopters behind the mountain. The belch of a sick and ferocious dog. The helicopters. Cloak the national territory in shadows. They suck the air out of what hours earlier had been clear sky. The helicopters of clean radiance, bloodless light, clean death, the poison gases that fall onto heads, so that you do not multiply, so that you do not have children, so that you do not smile, so that you do not ask for bread, the helicopters. Dogs that bark and bite, they froth and slaver, they drool terror, so that you do not rebel. They come, the helicopters of shit, They spit out the devil's fire, the flames of hell. The helicopters bark on the horizon. Their rotors stir and roil the hearts of the old and of the children. They drop demographic bombs. They drop the policy of death. When they fly over the river, they uncover the caves where men and women neither sleep nor age nor die. The children open fire with their toy rifles. The helicopters fall, wrapped in flames that are non-existent and that exist. Un, un horizonte de perros, los helicópteros detrás del monte. Su hipo de perro feroz enfermo, los helicópteros cubren de sombras el territorio nacional. Enrarecen el aire que horas antes era un cielo claro. Los helicópteros de rayo limpio, rayo que no hace sangrar, pero sí tiene muerte limpia. Los gases tóxicos caen sobre las cabezas para que no crezcas, para que no tengas hijos, para que no sonrías, para que no pidas pan. Los helicópteros, perros que ladran y muerden, tiran su baba de terror para que no haya rebeldía. Vienen los helicópteros de mierda, escupen fuego del diablo, fuego de los infiernos. Los helicópteros ladran en el horizonte, sus aspas revuelven el corazón de los viejos y de los niños. Caen las bombas demográficas y las pólizas de muerte. Se ven pasar arriba del río, descubriendo cuevas donde se esconden hombres y mujeres que no duermen, que no envejecen ni mueren. Los niños con sus fusiles de juguete disparan y los helicópteros caen envueltos en llamas, inexistentes y mortales. Strange things, odd happenings, a blue sky with no planes, birds that aren't poisoned to death, children that don't fall under machine gun fire, a national army that is not an army of occupation. No one sobs in clandestine pain. Young people don't have to hide from disproportionate, technical, modern, cruel, unusual death. Brother embraces brother, and no one dies betrayed by the simple expression of life and feeling. People sing in the streets, celebrating the truth, 
they have finally encountered. The smell of gunpowder is gone and bodies shimmer like far shining stars. Death is as natural as the birth of a flower or the return of day. Victory will belong to the rich in spirit and defeat to those impoverished on their golden beds. We all have something to say in the spirit of jubilation. Death's horsemen retreat to their shadow chambers and reflect on the immortality of the human spirit. Las cosas extrañas, los hechos raros, un cielo azul sin aviones, los pájaros no mueren envenenados, ningún niño ha caído bajo la metralla, ejército nacional no es un ejército de ocupación, nadie llora con un dolor recóndito. Las muchachas y los muchachos no tienen que esconderse de la muerte desproporcionada, técnica, moderna, fría. El hermano besa al hermano y nadie muere por algo tan sencillo como la expresión de la vida, de las emociones y los sentimientos. El pueblo canta por las calles para celebrar la verdad que al fin ha encontrado. El aire no huele a pólvora y los cuerpos son intangibles como astros que brillan lejanos. La muerte es algo natural como el nacimiento de una flor o como la ascensión del día. La victoria será de los ricos de espíritu y la derrota de los pobres en camas doradas. Todos tenemos algo que decir mientras estamos con la mente jubilosa. Los caballeros de la muerte, mientras tanto, se encierran en sus recámaras de sombras y reflexionan sobre la inmortalidad humana. Thank you. Our next reader is Joseph Brodsky. Um, Joseph Brodsky was born in St. Petersburg in 1940, and although it was then called Leningrad, I have a hunch that Joseph called it St. Petersburg, which didn't help his case probably. <laughs> he came to the West in 1972. Um, in English, uh, his books include of books of poems, selected poems, a part of speech, and two Urania, of essays, the book called Less Than One, um, a play, called Marbles, and just last May he published an essay on Venice called Watermark. Um, the nice thing about, for introducers, is that when somebody wins the Nobel Prize, you can forget mentioning all the other prizes that he or she won before. Joseph won the Nobel Prize in 1987. Thank you. I'm going to read to you about five or six poems. I read them mostly in English, um, simply for the reason, well, because I've translated them myself into English. So, uh, and they're about as good or as bad in English as they are in Russian. Uh, well, the first poem, <coughs> it's called A Song. I wish you were here, dear. I wish you were here. I wish you sat on the sofa and I sat near. The handkerchief could be yours. The tear could be mine, chin bound, though it could be, of course, the other way around. I wish you were here, dear. I wish you were here. I wish we were in my car and you'd shift the gear. We'd find ourselves elsewhere on an unknown shore or else we'd repair to where we've been before. I wish you were here, dear. 
I wish you were here. I wish I knew no astronomy when stars appear, when the moon skims the water that sighs and shifts in its slumber. I wish it were still a quarter to dial your number. I wish you were here, dear, in this hemisphere. As I sit on the porch, sipping a beer, it's evening, the sun is setting, boys shout and girls are crying. What's the point of forgetting if it's followed by dying? Uh, the title of the next poem is A Footnote to Weather Forecasts. <clears throat> a garden alley with statues of hardened mud, akin to gnarled, stunted tree trunks. Some of them I knew personally, the rest I see for the first time ever. Presumably they are gods of local woods and streams, guardians of silence. As for the feminine shapes, nymphs, and so forth, they look thought-like that is unfinished. Each one strives to keep, even here, in the future that came, her vagrant status. A chipmunk won't pop up and cross the path. No bird song is audible, no moreover a motor. The future is a panacea against anything prone to repetition. And in the sky they are scattered like a bachelor's clothes, clouds turned inside out, oppressed. It smells of conifer, the sprinkly substance of not so familiar places. Sculptures loom in the twilight, darkening thanks to the proximity to each other, thanks to the indifference of the surrounding landscape. Should any one of them speak, you would sigh, rather than gasp or shudder upon hearing well-known voices, hearing something like, the child wasn't yours, or true, I testified against him, but out of fear, not jealousy, petty, twenty, or dear old secrets of purblind hearts, obsessed with a silly quest for power over their likes. The best ones among them were at once the executioners and the victims. It's good that someone else's memories interfere with your own. It's good that some of these figures to you appear alien. Their presence hints at different events, at a different sort of fate, perhaps not a better one, yet clearly the one that you missed. This unshackles memory, more than imagination, not forever, of course, but for a while. To learn that you've been deceived, that you've been completely forgotten or the other way around, that you are still being hated is extremely unpleasant. But to regard yourself as a hub of even a negligible universe, unbearable and indecent. A rare, perhaps the only visitor to these parts. I have, I suppose, a right to describe the observed. Here it is, our little Valhalla, our long overgrown estate in time, with a handful of mortgage souls, with its meadows where a sharpened sickle won't roam in all likelihood with abandon and where the snowflakes float in the air as a good example of poise in a vacuum. And here's, uh, well, uh, this poem, uh, this title of this poem is Breeze Marine, and I read it to you both in Russian and, in English and in, and in Russian. Breeze Marine, the title is obviously uh, pinched from Mallarmé. Dear, 
I ventured out of the house late this evening, merely for a breath of fresh air from the ocean not far away. The sun was smoldering low like a Chinese fan in a gallery, and a cloud reared up its huge lid like, Stein, like a Steinway. A quarter century back, you craved curry and dates from Senegal, tried your voice for the stage, scratched profiles in a sketch pad, dallied with me, but late alloyed with a chemical engineer and judging by letters grew fairly stupid. These days you've been seen in churches, in the capital and in provinces, at rights for our friends or acquaintances now continues. Yet I'm glad after all that the world still promises distances more inconceivable than the one between us. Understand me correctly though, your verbal, your middle name, now stir practically nothing, not that they've ceased to burgeon, but to forget one life, a man needs at minimum one more life, and I've done that portion. You got lucky as well, where else? Save in a snapshot perhaps. Will you forever remain free of wrinkles, lithe, caustic, vivid? Having bumped into memory, time learns its impotence. Ebb tide, I smoke in the darkness and inhale rank seaweed. Дорогая, вышел из дому, дорогая, вышел сегодня из дому, поздно вечером, подышать свежим воздухом вещим с океана, закат догорал в, в портере китайским веером, и тучи грубилась, как крышка концертного фортепиано. Четверть века назад ты питал пристрастие к люля и к финикам, рисовала тушью в блокноте, немножко пела, развлекалась со мной. Но потом сошлась с инженером-химиком и, судя по письмам, чудовищно погрупела. Теперь тебя видят в церквах, в провинции и в метрополии, на панихидах по общим друзьям, идущих теперь сплошной очередой. И я рад, что на свете есть расстояния более немыслимые, чем между тобой и мною. Не пойми меня дурно, с твоим голосом, телом, именем. Ничего уже больше не связано, никто их не уничтожил. Но забыть одну жизнь человеку нужна как минимум еще одна жизнь. И я эту долю прожил, повезло и тебе, где еще, кроме разве что фотографии, ты прибудешь всегда без морщин, молода, весела, грумлива. Ибо время, столкнувшись с памятью, узнает о своем бесправии. Я курю в темноте и вдыхаю гнилье отлива. This, this one is called Song of Welcome. Here's your mom, here's your dad. Welcome to being their flesh and blood. Why do you look so sad? Here's your food, here's your drink. Also some thoughts, if you care to think. Welcome to everything. Here's your practically clean slate. Welcome to it though it's kind of late. Welcome at any rate. Here's your paycheck, here's your rent. Money is nature's fifth element, welcome to every cent. Here's your swarm and a huge beehive. Welcome to that there is, uh, welcome to that there is roughly five billion like you alive. Welcome to the phone book that stars your name. Digital democracy's secret aim, welcome to your claim to fame. Here's your marriage and here's divorce. Now that's the order you can't reverse, welcome to it, up yours. Here's your blade, here's your wrist. Welcome to playing your own terrorist, call this your Middle East. Here's a mirror, your dental gleam. Here's an octopus in your dream. Why do, why do you try to scream? Here's your corn cob, your TV set. 
your candidate suffering and upset, welcome to what he said. Here's your porch. Here's your porch. See the cars pass by. Here's your shitting dog's guilty eye. Welcome to its alibi. Here's your cicadas and then a chickadee. The bulbs dry tear in your lemon tea. Welcome to infinity. Here are your pills on the plastic tray. Your disappointing crisp x-ray. You're welcome to pray. Here's your cemetery, a well-kept glen. Welcome to a voice that says, Amen. The end of the rope, old man. Here's your will. And here's a few takers. Here's an empty pew. Here's life after you. And here are your stars, which appear still keen, on shining as though you had never been. They might have a point, old bean. Here's your afterlife with no trace of you, especially of your face. Welcome and call it space. Welcome to where one cannot breathe. This way space resembles what's underneath. And Saturn holds the wreath. And just one short poem. It's called Transatlantic. The last 20 years were good for practically everybody, save the dead. But maybe for them as well. Maybe the Almighty himself has turned a bit bourgeois and uses a credit card. For otherwise, time's passage makes no sense. Hence memories, recollections, values, deportment. One hopes one hasn't spent one's mother or father or both or a handful of friends entirely as they cease to hound one's dreams. One's dreams, unlike the city, become less populous the older one gets. That's why the eternal rest cancels analysis. The last 20 years were good for practically everybody and constituted the afterlife for the dead. Its quality could be questioned, but not its duration. The dead, one assumes, would not mind attaining a homeless status and sleep in archways or watch pregnant submarines returning to their native pen after a worldwide journey without destroying life on Earth, without even a proper flag to hoist. Thank you. Our next reader is Huang Sukyung, that is using the Korean word, or, word ordering. And since I first met Huang in Seoul, it's hard for me to think of him as anything but Huang Sukyung. Um, he is a novelist, playwright, and essayist who was born in Manchuria and has lived all over Korea. Well, more years in South Korea than in North, wouldn't you say? Um, and recently in Europe. Um, he is an extremely well-known writer in both North and South Korea and has written over 20 books. Um, some of his work has been translated and published in Japan and Taiwan, China, and also in Europe. Um, he's a passionate advocate for the reunification of Korea and is an untiring champion of grassroots causes. He has been in the forefront of many um, people-oriented, meaning the people, um, uh, movements in Korea and participated in and recorded the Hwangju uprising. Uh, when in March of 1989 he went to North Korea to foster a free interaction between North and South Korean artists and writers, he was the first civilian to visit that country since the division, um, thus breaking the still active national security law which defines North and North Korea as an enemy state. 
Since then, he has been unable to return to his home in South Korea and came to the United States in 1991 on an invitation from Long Island University. He currently lives in New York with his wife and son. Mr. Huang. I wrote this story in uh, 1976. Uh, it's almost 10 pages. Uh, I'll read uh, some sentences. <coughs> the Minstrel. Across the river is a big marketplace. At dawn, laden ferries ascend the river, knifing through reflections that glisten like the flanks of darting carp. Hair like strands of smoke rise up, wingless, of mercy with the gray blue morning sky, as the shapes of the ferry gliding over the water, and then the ferryman emerging into view through the gray mist of first light. Lowing sound of drowsy oxen cheering, children crying out to one another, open awakening to eyes full of sunrise, the brass bell sounding from the tower by the town gate, the ring of the blacksmith's hammer. Each morning, when all these sounds float over from the far side of the river, it seems that life is being born anew, even in the dismal centuries-old graveyard even within the walls of, of the town fortress. But then what lies on this side of the river? Here there is a barren open field and an abandoned temple where I, the teller of this tale, live all alone, a young beggar, a leper with one eye. It has been some time since I was driven out of the marketplace, put on the ferry and forbidden ever to return. Here I am now starving in this wasteland, infested with field mice, wild cats, frogs, and snakes. With oozing ulcers on my sun-cut knees and the running sore in my one good eye that attracts all the flies in the vicinity, each day I go down to the riverbank, longing with all my heart for the marketplace. Bits and pieces of speech and laughter drift over from those whose lives are bright and active, aromas of greasy, greasy food cooking, and most of all the cheerful melodies of joyful music make their way, way over the river to assail my nose and ears. Oh, why did I have to be cast out here? It was because of Suchu, who gave me life and enlightened me about the beauty in the world. I am now awaiting the day when Suchu will return from death to life. Then together, he and I will cross the river, so I can witness him proudly singing the songs that banish it all that is rotten and corrupt. The low and powerful voice hanging in the melody seemed to emit an uncanny glow into the cold, 
dreary marketplace? Was it only I who stood up startled? No. When I rushed up onto the bridge as hesitantly, as if in great need to relieve myself, I saw faces emerging from the windows of all the shops and the tavern. On the bridges sat this ragged minstrel with a zither on his lap, bending his head so low as to appear decapitated, planting his melody deep into the earth. Soon the bridge was sick with people, men from the tavern, garrulous peddler women, and busy wives in town for the market, each one drawn lockstep by the music. It's a sound like to drive a man out of his senses. Never before has such music been heard here in the marketplace. No sooner was the song over than everyone pulled coins out of their pockets and tossed them his way. As the sound of flying money picked up, I greeted my teeth in envy, seized with the burning impulse to smash the zither that generated so much money with its mystic tones. Play one more. Try a longer song this time. Everyone went wild, each in his own manner, but the unfamiliar minstrel remained silent, his face buried deep in, in his chest. Then with fingers lean and long as sticks, he gathered the coins between his knees and pushed them under himself. Only know one song, huh? Lift up your head, we can see you. Let's see your face. To get their money's worth, the crowd squatted down around the singer and demanded a good look at him. Slowly and resolutely, he lifted his face from his chest. Then he took his time to look around at the people before him. The instant I set eyes on his face, I felt my heart drop. I grew sick to my stomach. The wandering minstrel possessed a face more horribly loathsome than any before seen in the entire world. An excited buzz coursed through the crowd as the minstrel began to sing his obscene face grew even more misshapen. The beauty of the mysterious melody seemed to vanish into the ugliness of his face, eyes, nose, mouth, though all his features were in their proper places. The impression somehow kindled in the souls of the crowd, a hatred which in turn engendered a profound hostility. Having already forgotten their earlier applause for his music, the people seemed possessed by a growing malevolence at the sight of the ragged minstrel, whose presence they found unbearable. At first, we were tricked. Never before we have we heard such awful music. It's the sort, of the sort of song that makes people hate each other. What a sickening voice. Somebody picked up a pebble to throw at him. Little stones became bigger, bigger ones and moving from a few steps away right up to his head, the indignant crowd almost stunned the unfortunate vagabond to death. Lest I should be left out, I had to raise the stone and cast it with all my might at his back. Ignoring his tone and bleeding forehead, he gazed straight into the eyes of his persecutors, 
his face upright. When the stones abated somewhat, he crowd pushed him from the place where he sat and searched in a frenzy for the money they had dropped at his feet. The wandering singer, glaring at them, endured it all to the last, when the people grasped his limbs and threw him off the bridge. Then they spat and went on their, their ways with their reclaimed money. The bastard like a spirit returned from the dead to ruin our day. Such characters shouldn't be allowed to loiter in the marketplace. He is like a demon from hell alive in this world. <clears throat> you hate me too? He spoke first, and I paused for a moment before replying as I scrutinized the details of his unpleasant feature. I'm fiercer than you. And now that I look at you, you seem no different than anyone in the marketplace. You're no uglier than anyone else out there. They hate me because only the song is beautiful. He said after heaving a deep sigh. A furtively moved nearer to this stranger and sat beside him as by a close friend. Why don't you give up singing altogether? Your songs bring only hatred from people. You could survive as a beggar like me. Without music, I cannot live. My face began to appear ugly from the moment I perfected my song. By the way, what's your name? I'm just called Kekushe, leper. And you? I've named myself Suchu. I spent a long, long time on my quest for the mystic melody, and now I can't even recall what my real name was, who my parents were, how old I am, who my friends were, or what my neighbors were like. All this I've forgotten. At last I found the melody and perfected my song. But the instant I, I perfected my song, I lost my face. When you began to sing with your face raised, the people grew insane with the wish to destroy you. Having heard me say this, Suchi buried his face in his hand and shouted, now my full being is filled with hatred. I'm a leper with a disfigured face oozing with ulcers, but there's no hatred in me. I don't mind sharing this place with you, only you must promise me never to sing in the marketplace. If I don't sing, I will soon waste away and die. So I'll go to a place where nobody lives and sing my song there. Well, across the river is an abandoned temple. Nobody lives there. Thank you for telling me. He arose limping from his wounds, carrying his jitter on his sloped shoulder. As when he first arrived, Suchu went across the river, leaving behind the marketplace where he had been so greatly accursed. He had crossed the river, leaving the world of people behind in order to lead a solitary life, singing perfect songs. After crossing the water, he had walked over rocky fields, over sandy hills, and across the plain with its 
forest of scrawny pines until at last he reached the place where the abandoned temple stood. Suchu experienced innumerable occasions in which the animals at first dawn would suddenly tremble and fly away from him, and then at twilight they once more would gather to listen to his song. Organized by such a cycle of hatred and love, he grew more and more emaciated. One day, in broad daylight, he was singing in solitude. When he was about to begin the accompaniment on the zither, a string broke with a snap. The miserable wailing of the broken steering string shattered his song into the thousand pieces, making him spring to his feet and smash the zither on the steps of the temple in Raisi. The instrument gave out grotesque sound as it broke, and broken with it was his song. The corpse of the murdered melody lay strewn at his feet. He had lost his ability to sing. While enjoying this death-like repose, he realized that he, who once had hated everything except, he, except his song, at last he had changed his appearance. They used to say in the marketplace that the sight of him passing by their shops early in the morning with his lively gait gave them a sudden feeling of peace, his songs filling their souls with joy and light. At the ferry dock, down by the river, one could always hear him humming or whistling, and he constantly sang to himself as he bore heavy laws. People gradually learned his melodies, and every took to singing along with him. Spring had come once more, and all the dead things along the river were re resurrected, birds flocked about, singing to their heart's content. I also, barely making it back to life after the sleet and freezing cold of winter, again resumed my trotting about the marketplace. The time was approaching when a great fair was to be held in the marketplace, and people were bringing out their colorful lanterns to light the festivities, food, colored banners, and bamboo decorations were being prepared. In the course of the busy preparation for the happy event, the thought of Suchu and his songs dawned on them. Never realize we have such a marvelous singer among us. All he lacks is an instrument. If he will sing for us, our festival will be even more blissful. Let's get him an instrument so his songs can be even more striking. Such being the decision of the people in the marketplace, several of them came down to the bridge, boisterously offering to furnish him with whatever instrument he desired. After declining polit politely several times, Suchu relented to their <coughs> pleas and slowly turned to point at the colonial tree standing by the bridge. Would you give me that tree? The song went on and on. More and more people were flocking to the marketplace with no end in sight. 
Upon hearing this news, the Lord of Town sent his men to arrest Su Chu. Before locking Su Chu in his dungeon, the Lord said, If you promise never to sing again, I will set you free at once. While I live, I must sing. Then I will permit you to go somewhere where nobody lives and to sing in solitude. I cannot part from those who love my song. The Lord had no choice but to imprison him, and the instrument was seized. Then all the strings were stripped from the confiscated zither, lest it be used again, and it was chopped into three pieces and used to make a table. Still, each day, Suchu could be heard from the dungeon singing a new song. The song he sang soon was spread over the fall marketplace, and everyone took to singing <coughs> each new song. Next, the Lord gave an order to cut out Suchu's tongue. His tongue was severed. The Lord's guards left Suchu's tongue hanging on a branch of a tall parchment tree for the cross to eat. Countless crows perched on a branch and pecked at the tongue hundreds of times over, but it was too hard, tough for any crow to eat. The tongue, seemingly alive and well with a fresh crimson color, hang high in the air, fluttering before the gaze of the people. Stu sang from deep in his throat. Once again, his songs dispersed to all corners of the marketplace. People repeated these songs in secret. Even at night, when only dreams flitted about, they heard in their sleep the melodies of his songs echoing far and wide. At last, the Lord commanded that Suchu be beheaded. His throat was cut through, and his decapitated head was exposed on the top of a bamboo spear. The face perched at the top of a spike was that of a man happier than anyone to be found in this world. People became even more eager to sing the songs Suchu left behind. Finally, the Lord ordered the elimination of every single thing that in any way reminded people of Suchu. The bridge was torn down, the stump of the polonia tree uprooted, and I was driving away to the far side of the river. Yet, as is said among the people in the marketplace, the story of Suchu's death is an obvious lie, for his songs continue to be sung. Even now, each day at sunrise, holding his fluttering tongue close to my heart, I walk to the river bank to greet Suchu. Next, we have Ninochka Roska, who is from the Philippines. She was a political prisoner under the Marcos regime. Currently, uh, she works as a journalist and writer and also at Amnesty International. She's a member of the board of Pan American Center and of the Pan International Women's Committee. Five of her books have been published, the latest being the novel Twice Blessed, 
from which he'll read tonight. Nanoshka? Thinking about Mrs. Marcos and thinking about Mrs. Aquino and thinking about all our women who entered a male-directed and male-dominated electoral system, I started to chart the development of these women, and this book, Twice Blessed, is the result. I will read a very short portion from it, but I think that short portion makes the point. The formal ball usually begins with the rigodon de honor, a quadrille by seven couples, six along the hall's length and one in the middle, underneath a ball of mirrors spinning on its axis, piercing space with a pink, blue, yellow, and purple of reflected light, reflected images, its harsh brilliance and insubstantial waterfall spilling upon the dancing pairs all drawn from high society, provided, of course, that there are enough who can dance without tripping on their feet or causing the help to titter under their breasts. Otherwise, dancers will have to be pulled in from the women's school where they train future society page ladies and discreet prostitutes. But if the ball is to be opened thus, as tradition decrees it should be opened, when will herself, with a capital H, make the grand entrance, one step pause, one step pause, at the marble staircase swerving down to the ceremonial hall of the palace, which is not a palace, but a humbler summer retreat 200 years old, of Spanish governor generals long departed. Too bad the real one disappeared in the rubble of the last war. Or was it the war before that? And if herself makes her entrance at this point, should the music stop to allow the boys town orphanage thoughts to toot the fanfaronade while she slides, steps, slides, steps down the staircase, careful of the train of her gown and the stiff butterfly sleeves, the garment weighing around 40 pounds, what with the seed pearls and the silk embroidery? How can she walk in stiletto hills with that load? Endless problems. But even with the battalion of servants at one's command, a presidential inauguration is a complicated affair. And though responsibilities have been divided, Still, Teresa Tiklop-Tuhod, childhood friend and official confidant of Caterina Gloriosa herself and her twin brother, His Excellency-to-be, Hector Basbas, has to hover over the entire preparations like a hawk surveying the landscape, ever vigilant about details. Will the moon be properly full, be clear overhead, or will it be necessary to send aloft propeller planes to half puff dark clouds over to the horizon towards the China Sea? And if herself, as Katerina has come to be known nowadays, makes her grand entrance at this point, should the rigodon music halt for the fanfaronade? And if so, how then can the dancers do the traditional salute without music? Bah endless problems. But Katerina wants everything just right, 
perfect, symmetrical, she says, making a double circle, mindful of her inch-and-a-half refrigerator-wide plastic nails, with thumb and index finger of both hands. Nothing untoward, nothing unusual, nothing out of place. Because as Teresa knows, she has a mania for harmony, for order, arising from the constant disruption of her life, a longing for the precise, which grows and gathers like dark cumulus in her chest, just beneath her throat, to be disgorged once in a while in the form of an incoherent, uncontrollable rage. Such as possessed her three days after the Commission on Elections announced the final vote count and proclaimed the triumph of Hector Basbas, henceforth to be called His Excellency to be Sir, even in his bathroom. And the twin San Juan residence with its artificially aged adobe walls filled up with well wishers. The town mayor had decreed a holiday discreetly, justifying it by citing some allegedly scholarly findings at the Dead Sea, which was half a globe away and thus unverifiable for cynics, which proved that the town's namesake and his spiritual patron, St. John, had been beheaded in November and not in summertime per the church calendar. Wherefore, by virtue of powers invested in him, the mayor, and so on and so forth, he called for the celebration of the day of St. John the Baptist now, thus satisfying with a single proclamation his desire to pander and his need to appear nonpartisan. At which bands of ragamuffins and watch of carboys deployed themselves about the bus bus residence, at street corners between parked cars, behind trees, and even up electric posts, thus showing they knew very well what this was all about, and carrying their feast day paraphernalia of water hoses, water pistols, pails, tin cans, because St. John was honored by dousing the unwary in mock baptism faucet water, canal water, pothole water, while through the bus bus gates past the dark blue uniformed security guards, now augmented by presidential guards in funereal black, streamed a literally streaming throng who had to be tendered fresh towels and pushed towards various bathrooms. Now among them came dear, dear, and least like cousin Matrimonia Bas Bas, now the grand matriarch of the clan, though she was still unmarried, having attained the honor by virtue, by virtue, hmm, I lost it, by virtue of attrition, with so many relatives overseas or dead or gone insane, which was why this afternoon it was she who brought the clan's respects, batting her eyelashes and flicking her fingers, despite the splotch of water which had ruined the bodice of her pink dress, stitched by seamstresses of the Couturier Romero, whom, said Matrimonia, Caterina simply must try for her inauguration ball gown over your dead body, Katerina thought, noting how cousin matrimonia was revealed to be as flat as a wall, while she managed through many eyebrow arching, smooths and head shakings to convey the impression that dear, dear cousin was always welcome, no matter how she looked, while all the time pushing her towards the main reception room without benefit of towel and mirror to repair her ruined toilet. And there she found herself, stinking of canal water amidst the glows to the hair roots, denizens of Alta Sociedad.
but not before Katerina had deftly extracted from her fingers the congratulatory gift, a rosary of pearls, each bead the size of a man's thumbnail, the Hail Marys of pure white, the Our Father's bruised blue, and the crucifix a hefty 22 karat gold, at least four inches, mind you. Looping the rosary firmly about her right hand, Katerina repaired to an upper floor landing, the better to watch matrimonious discomfiture. For this was the cousin who many years ago, when she herself was at the women's school and had been chosen lantern queen, had lent her with malice aforethought a pair of shoes from among the 50 or so pairs in the closet. The oldest pair, many times resold, repaired, perhaps with the cheapest glue, or maybe not glue even, but with hardened floor wax, crusted leftover cream of chicken soup or crushed rice grains. What with Katerina's exertions as she danced the queen's waltz and the December humidity, the souls came loose and punctuated the blue Danube with a flap, 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 while the concert, the most eligible only son of a sugar baron grew, rude in, grew red in the face and glanced at his pants buttons as suppressed giggles in the darkened hall rose to thin squeals of laughter. A misstep, Katerina stumbled and fell heavily against her partner, who caught at the instant he was rising to his toes, lost his balance, and landed on his butt. He arced forward and sprang to his feet at once like a karateka, but his eyes had been brought to ground level, and he had seen the indecent black tongue sticking out from underneath Katerina's white shoes. With a strange smile, he wound his arms about her again and led her back to the dance, but not before whispering into her ear such a phrase that, when it was uttered, knives and blood were drawn. But I guton, he said, oh you dying of hunger, you, trembling, frightened, and turning all colors of humiliation, Katerina allowed him to twirl her and turn her, left shoulder forward, right shoulder following, left knee bent slightly, dipped to the last waltz note. After which he clicked his heels, bowed with irony, and disappeared from her life forever. Flap, flap. Grimly, Katerina watched Matrimonia as a small space bloomed about the woman, an emptiness which swallowed her elegance nods her brilliant smiles as men and women sidestepped away from her pleasantries for the scent of canal water could be vicious to those who were awakened by maids spraying the morning with water and crushed jasmine petals. She smiled, sliding the pearls of prayer between her fingers, breathing her gratitude to a God who'd allowed her this moment of pleasure. In a life, she would add to Teresa later, largely devoid of joy. But she wasn't stupid enough to believe that the fickle heavens wouldn't make her pay for this tiny moment. And so as not to tempt fate, from here on she'd make sure she had a pair of shoes to go with every dress, every coat, every handbag, every bra even in her wardrobe. 
and would never travel again, even to the corner grocery store, without a crate of footwear, heaven help her. <laughs> she could be grateful to God, but trust him? Thank you. was born in Lithuania. As a participant of the dissident movement there, he was stripped of his Soviet citizenship and forced to emigrate in 1977. He's currently an associate professor of Slavic languages and literatures at Yale. He is the author of several books of poetry in Lithuanian, including Sign of Speech, Winter Talk. There are also three books of essays, including Forms of Hope. His poetry has been translated into many languages and has appeared in book form in Polish, Slovenian, and Hungarian. Thomas Minslev. Um, unfortunately, first of all, I don't translate my own poetry into English. Indiana Sinashal does it. And uh, secondly, I am bad in presenting it in English, so, so, so Diana will read it. But I will probably read three poems, and the f well, rather recent ones, and the first of them, uh, and f also the second of them, uh, request some commentary. The first is uh, longish and uh, a bit didactic, and it's, uh, the title is To Felix Austria. This is an ancient, um, well, how to, yes, how to call it, um, um, emblematic uh, saying of uh, ancient Austrian empire. Bella, Geren, Talii, to Felix, Austria, Nube. Uh, that could be translated approximately into English as let them make war, uh, you, happy Austria, should make love. And uh, this is about Vienna, about the city of Vienna, and about the Yugoslav war. Um, which is going close by. And um, Vienna, of course, with some references to the city's past, including in the beginning I speak about Freud and Hitler. So uh, probably first in uh, English, then in Lithuanian. Thank you. To Felix Austria. In this city, weary of saving humankind, where many cures have been imposed upon the many nerves of those who tell their sticky dreams through shortened breath, timed to the hour, softened by sofas in the office, where aging Europe's unbeloved son conceived of death, he was who was so rashly rejected by the artist guild. Today, the whirlpool swings the still boat into sway and the banks of the river swing under the double range of chestnut trees. In a cafe, you hear the viral sputter of last year's rock, and not ruins, but the ponderous Baroque, along with a star, stuck on the lofty balcony, bears witness to the arrogance of this land. The rhythm rocks the consciousness to sleep. The concave air at the square slides into the eye, so transparent it seems your feet swing like a pendulum, and only music and pulse in amalgam give you a hand. You are blinded by the color of the clouds, ambling under arches, almost blended with granite, dust, lilac blossoms. 
you find no common words with this euphonic chime to suddenly an outcast of your time and unsure whether this is a curse or a blessing. Not straightening his back, Sisyphus can rest on the mountain's peak, detaching his palm in terror from the flaring stone, the burden which for eons wrecked him, then tamed him, now stuck in gravel, aimless and nameless. It is sunny and still. In the open, a dog rose spills into blossom, and at last, there is no need to joust with destiny. Rake the grass, stumble, slide down the steep salacious shoulder, and youth slips a minute later from your memory. And if only one broken sentence still disturbs the soul, maybe these are just the strokes of the taut bell, Bella Garant. And if at night, a wretched raft a route about to be rolled over by Oster's rage is launched out into the sea. Others, not we, will perish there. Blood fades, a tank turns into dust. An era has ended. The plague must choose new lands. The train no longer enters the terminal where fire and space are fraternal, where machine guns, speaking in Morse, answer Moses and Christ in snapping retorts. The Baroque celestial cloth sinks over the Habs Habsburg fortress. Only beyond the horizon, where the air wounds, where a man crawls into a hole, where stone breaks into sand, where lead so swiftly meets flesh, between Franz Ferdinand and today, there is no gulf. The foliage shattered into splinters like blackened plaster pastes up the mouth, and Saturn is saturated with his sperm, just as when time was first spawned. And yet not here does torment fuse late evening and dawn, exceeding the terms set forth for mortals. In a camp on a stone field, refugees taste the darker air of freedom, having a few happy hours to spend, dreaming visionless, while those whom a bullet spent and saved probably see starker dreams and yet seem stronger and more content. Death is not here, she always looms. The tones of the bells come closer. She lives in granite, heat, wine, and bread, in chestnuts entwined with acacias. She roams in dreams. History is part of death. Galileo, not Hegel, was right. Epper sim wove. A dense, charred sphere revolves into night. What at first seemed real is just a denial of time. There is no revival in sleep. Nothing and clouds extend through the window. Death is not here. Death is at hand. She rides around in the cage of the room, crosses out the next calendar date, then looks in the mirror and meets you face to face. But while she still dallies in blackish glass air, Sisyphus is needed here. Here in this insomniac city, uninclined to distinguish the petty from the things that matter, to unearth the root of the foretold myth and await without hope the trumpets of the Lord on the diamond-sharp slope.
Yes, as you probably noticed, um, Auster is uh, south wind. The coincidence with the name of Austria is, uh, well, well, fortuitous. And um, when I speak about Hegel and Galileo, this is, of course, a reference to Fukuyama, about the end of the history, which unfortunately does not end. Shama mesta kurama karto galbeti žmonija, kuršitek neurasteniku pagijo kabineta glicius sapnus per jega iš pažinusiu ant sofos, kur mirti masti sanstančios Europos, nemilima sunus taip nelemtai, nepriimtas į menininkų luoma, vertatas vandenį linguoja luota ir supasikrantai po dvigu vakaštonų grandinę, kaviniai koščioja per nykštis rokas ir negruvėsiai osvarus barokas su balkone įstrigusio žvaigžte tau liudėje šalies puikybę. Ritmas aptemdo samonę, įvyzdį rytas įlinkęs oras tiesa aikšte, jos kaigruma tokia juk rodos žengsi ir parpulsi ir padeda tik muzikos ir pulso amalgama. Ankino debesų spalvos, brendi po arkomis, beveik sutapęs su dulkėm granitų, alyvų lapais, nerasdamas kalbos su šia daržna, per staigiai išblokštas iš savo laiko, dar nesuvogdamas ar tai nelaimi ar dovana. Netikėsdamas dėmens, įsifas gauna pailsėti kalno viršūniai, baugėti traukęs delną nuo blizgančių akmens, naštos kuriai jį tiek eonų grūdino ir ardi, dabar įklimpus iš virkštę, bevardi ir nejutri. Saulėta ir ramų, erdvei putoja žydintis ir škėtis, ir pirmas jik nereikia galinėtis sulikimų, ant įtnaginio statmeno peties, Žarstyti žolę, klupinėti, slysti ir po akimirkos išdils jaunysti iš atminties. Ir jeigu bent nutrūkęs sakinys dar krumščia sėla, tai gal tik standus varpo dūžiai, bela, gerent ir jei naktį į jūrą leidžiasi vargingas plaustas, kurį to jau parblokš įdūkęs austras, ten mirskiti nemes. Iš blunka kraujas virsta dulkiem tankas, era pasibaigė ir maras rankas naujas žemes, į tą pasienio stotį, kur ugnis erdvėsia suo, kur kristui arba mozei atsikerta kalašnikuvų morzi jau neina traukinys. Barokinis dangus virš Habsburgų tvirtovės nusileidžia, tik už akiračio kuroras žaidžia, kur įduboja glaudžiasi žmogus, apirusios kalnuos, kur švinas mėsa taip lengvai suranda, nėra spragos tarp Franco Ferdinando ir šios dienos. Skeveldrų išardytą lapyje, pajuodusių gipsų užlipdo burnas ir savo sėklas sotinas Saturnas, kaip amžių pradžioje, Ir vis dėl to nečia ilo įtalydo išnaktęs ir rytą, pranokusi mirtingam lemtą ribą kančia. Stovykloj ant akmens grindų bėgliai ragauja tamsų laisvės orą, be ženklėmes apne patyja porą laimingų valandų otie, kuriuos skilutis milkinį apsaugojo nuo žemiškų pavojų, tikriausiai sunkesnius sapnus sapnuoja ir vis dėl to šiek tiek laimingesni. Mirtis nečia, jį visada šalia, jie vis tik sliau atliepia varpo tonai, jį granite kaitroj vinia ir duonoj, kaštonų ir akacijų tinklia sapnuos, istorija mirties dalis, teisus nehegelis, o galilėjus epursimove. 
curtias a pangleias, passe su cainacti rotolis, castau atrode da bartes, ira teclei copaneguemas, miagas niad gaivens, us lango plite niaca serdabasis, mertes niacha, mertes xalá, e cuitas cambaronarvá, esbrau que a bloknotá e ilinha data, pasque pas velga vaidroden, irmato tavá. O colidar gaifuaya juos vamas teklinema ora, sisi fui dara, shama nelinku sama skirti gara, ir bloga senama bemiegame miesta, pasamti asma išnu skirto mito, ir veltui laukti viešpaties trimito, aš pram liktaimantas šlaita. Now the second poem, which is shorter, it's called Pestel Street. It also needs some commentary. Pestel Street is the street in St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad, formerly St. Petersburg, and uh, the street where uh, Joseph Brodsky lived. And I was happy enough to spend uh, some important days of my life there many, many years ago. I visited that street, uh, which Joseph Brodsky did not still do, um, uh, in a 88, uh, and the poem is about this strange visit in the, to, to the Soviet Union before uh, Perestroika started, for real. And um, it also has um, um, a, a, a motto, a motto probably known to anybody um, who, um, in, who reads English, Although this one is decayed, it's from Odin. The decade is the decade which has passed uh, with our, um, yes, after our migration. So please, uh, first the English text. It's here. Pestel Street. Summer submerges the city. The glass reflects only dust. The warm wine is trickling into the hazy chalice. The air is flavored with fading gold of sunlit cupolas. Algae-like Cyrillic characters blacken the narrow canal. What do you seek here, poet? An old balcony, a text effaced on the crumbling stucco. The world turned into dust. The untied Gordian knot, lime, asphalt, and tile. The gateway mud, the litter on stairs, the unclosed door. Here where gesture, life, and sound once coincided, the flowing crowds are speaking in a slightly altered language. The whiteness of June is throbbing, and the blind brain turning to stone no longer contains all the time that was lost. The new era colors the accent, the syntax, the syntax, the architecture, the droplets of sun on the columns, the bronze and smile in the bay. Perhaps only poverty, hunger resist the era still. Perhaps only shadow and fear linger on from our youth. Grow accustomed to swimming in fear, just like a fish in the ocean. Fear is long lasting here, much more enduring than bodies. Peaceful and open squares taste the midday haze. Lime, asphalt, and tile, Cyrillic on crumbling stucco. Even now there remains of life several copper coins, times change counted out by the local absurd bank. Melody, gesture, freeze over. The prospect disclaims the alleys. 
It's strange that we saw each other somewhat before we expected. Not in the Yosafat Valley, not in the grove by Lethe, not even in the airless universe where in the manner of gods Kelvin and Becquerel rule. The warmed wine is trickling, clouds of sleeplessness float over white and hot June. The crowd and sound are floating, but the weight of our craft stays the same, to change time into a stanza, to concentrate fear into meaning. Just dust, just the voice is throbbing. The voice has no way to perceive how much truth can fit into its shine and solitude. Vasaran apsebe miesta, stiklasat spenditik dulkes, ipadumavusia taura, lasha ishilas vinas, oras pagardintas saulei, blestancho kupolu aukso, dumblei neliginant rašmens tamsina siaura kanala. Kotuči ieškai poete, senas balkonas, išdilės tekstas ant bylančio tinko, dulkėmis virtės pasaulis, atmekstas gordijo mazgas, kalkis asfaltas ir malksnus, purvas tarp puvartiai laiptų šiukšlis, neuždaros dūlis. Čia, kur kada įsia sutapo, gestas, gyvybė ir garsas, ošinčios minios vartoja, kiek pasikeitusia kalba, plasda birželio baltumas, ir akmenėjančios aklus smegens nebeprėpia viso prarasto laiko. Amžius nudažo akcentą, sintaksia architektūra, saulės lašus ant kolonų, bronzinė šypsena nišoj, gal tik neturtas ir alkis, vis dar atsispiria amžiui, gal tik šešeilis ir baimiai lieka iš mūsų jaunatvis. Pratinkis plaukioti baimiai, tarsi žuvis vandenynė, Baimė čionai ilgą laikį, daug patvaresnį už kūnus. Taikios apskritos aikštis, ragauja vidurdinio dūmą, kalkis asfaltas ir gipsas, rašmens ant bylančio tinko. Jau ir gyvenimo liko kelios vadinys monetos, laiko graža atskaičiuota čionikščio absurdiško banko, stinksta melodija gestas, skersgatvius neigia prospektai. Keista, kad mes pasimatėm, kiek anksčiau nei numanėm. Ne Jozapato pakalniai, ne giraitiai prielėtos, net nebeoriai visatoj, kur tarsi dievai vieš patauja Kelvinas ir Bekerelis, laša išildytas vynas, neamigo debes jis plaukia virš balto ir karšto birželio. Plaukia minia ir garsynas, bet tas pat mūsų amatos voris laika iškeisti strofą, Baime sutelkti prasme, plasda tik dulkis, tik balsas, balsų neduotas žinoti, kiek tiesos išsitenka jos pindesi ir vienatvėj. And the third poem is, well, it's rather private and it does not need commentary. Please. It's the shortest one. I've learned to see in the dark to distinguish happiness from happiness, to understand what the closeness of another life can mean, to catch unexpectedly how the time of year changes, how two or three atoms add weight to the air at noon. The reflection in the window vanished half a moment ago, the voice mixed into the leaves, 
the breathing scrambled traces were repeating to me that you had returned to town before a friend, a well-wisher, an enemy, God himself was able to say it. Like a Delphic fugitive, you hid in the bowls of cherry trees, elms, you changed, shifted the calendar, having turned away from the ray, having turned almost into untruth and non-existence, that which is unable to grant him even a drop of itself. Here the exchange is always uneven. Phoebus is alive thanks to you while you exist on your own. What myth guesses, what verbum and logos had hidden, we will grasp with ease, I think, when we cross the finish line. And now, when the reflector's echo thunders a double start, when the concrete and wheels fly apart by a millimeter, like a blizzard to one in Siberia, the name burns the throat, literally, in truth, meaning snowy weather. The wet, curved mainland mirrors your features. It's unclear whether stars are circling or a wing is plunging, and there's not much reality. The play of wind and waters, the universe of clouds over Geneva, Varna, London. Werther is already forgotten. All the places in the world are marked in the diary. The word I love is erased. The crash is much closer. Even the homeland and the Lord are closer than the body and soul just 15 miles from this place. There are no more signs in the sky, but still one can see and hear in the final darkness before the era of ice or fire. It has been said that there will be no more time. 2,000 years, two drops, two airplanes roll through the hemisphere. Aš išmokau matyti tamsoj, skirti laimę nuo laimės, suvokti koks stolis, kitos gyvybės artumas, netikėtai pagauti, kaip keičiusi metų laikas, kaip vidurdinio oras pasunkėja dviem trim atomais, atspindys vitlinoj prieš pusę mirksnio pradingęs, balso priemai šalapuose, painio salsavimo pėdos man kartodavo, jog sugrįžai į miestą, kai draugas geranoris priešas pats dievas nebūdavo spėjas apie tai prasitarti. Nei delfų bėglės lapsteisi vyšnių guobų kamienos, kitėjai keitėjai kalendorių, nusigražus nuo spindulio virtus beveikį netiesą ir į nebūtį tą, kuri neįstengia laiduoti jam nėlašų savęs, čia mainai visuomet nelygus. Febas gyvas tik tavo dėka, tu esi savaime, ką nuspėja mitas, ką nuslipia verbum ir logos, tą mano ubevergo suprasim, peržengia baigme. O dabar, kai reflektoriam saidin sužia dviguvas startas, kai betonas ir rata išsiskiria per milimetrą, lyg pūga sibiriokui, gerklę nudegina vardas, pažodžiui, tiesą sakant ir reiškintis sniego vėtrą. Tavo bruožus kartoja drėgnas išlinkęs žemynas, Nesuprasi, ar sukas iš vaikštės, ar supas iš parnas, ir tikrovės nedaug, vandenų ir vėjo žaidimas, debesų visą tą virženevos Londono varnos. Jau pamirštas verteris, visos pasaulio vietos, atžymėtos dienoreštį, užbrauktas žodis mylių, daug arčiau sudužimas, arčiau tėvynį ir viešpats, nei kūnas ir siela vos už penkiolikus mylių. Danguja nebėra ženklų, bet žmogus dar mato, 
Paskutinei tam soi priešugnės ar priešlado era, pasakyta, kad laiko nebus. Du tūkstančiai metų, du lašai, du lėktuvai nusidėta per hemisferą. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I would like to say a few words of thanks to construct an evening like this of poetry reading needs the gathering of the bricks. For this task, I would like to thank uh, Irina Dipko, our secretary, and Pamela Pierce. I also would like to thank Karen Kennelly who helped cementing it. Furthermore, I would like to thank the American Pen, which housed it all. And by extension, I would like to say thanks to the United States, which gave refuge to us all, because all the readers and many of those who are present, in one way or another, found refuge in this country and a welcome home in the American Penn building and in the Penn family. Thank you, kind participants, and thank you, kind audience. Goodbye.